Are you ready to experience the rich interconnection of spirituality, orientation, and identity? If so, plan to attend Liberating Your Divine Identity, a retreat at Unity Village during Pride Month, June 9th to the 12th. This soul-filled retreat is facilitated by LGBTQIA plus Unity Ministers with workshops and ceremonies to cultivate a deeper awareness of our spiritual nature. Register at unityvillage.org forward slash I am divine 2022. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, celebrating Pride Month with the LGBTQ community. Spirituality, exploring the unity within all cultures and faith traditions, with your host, Reverend Paul John Roach. So, hello and welcome to World Spirituality on the Unity Online Radio Network. Yes, I'm your host, Paul John Roach, coming to you from Fort Worth in Texas. And today we journey to the remote Himalayan mountains of the upper Manang district of Nepal and experience a tale of spiritual discovery, healing, and connection, and the, the finding of love and truth in this lost valley of the Himalayas is a part of the story in the book entitled A Story of Karma, and the author, Michael Shaw, um, understood uh, the journey to be a transformative one for him and his wife, Chantal, uh, and it makes for fascinating reading. Uh, Michael's a mountaineer, is uh, an entrepreneur, and also a storyteller, a global financial investor. He's also an altruist dedicated to local and international mentoring, fundraising, and educational initiatives. And so we'll find out more about that in a minute. He's based in British Columbia and has been going, wanting to go to Nepal, I should say, uh, since he was 15, and has been drawn to the majesty of the that that beautiful kingdom in in the mountains, and uh, this transformed really from a mountaineering adventure into something much more profound. Though I shouldn't say that because mountaineering could be a very spiritual experience too. I don't want to put down any of our listeners who happen to be mountaineers, um, but it was a gift that he could hardly imagine that that, that happened there. Uh, so without further ado, it's a joy to m- welcome Michael Shao to today's show. Welcome. Glad you're with us. Thank you. Thank you so much, Paul. Yeah. And thank you for that wonderful introduction. I, I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate being on the show here with you. And I understand you've been on our, our network before, right? I think I saw a, a podcast with Diane Ray. That's right. Yeah. I had a wonderful conversation with Diane. She's uh, she's an absolute pleasure to uh to converse with as well. <laughs> well, good. Well, I'm glad you're on uh, World Spirituality here. Right up my alley. I went to Nepal myself back in the day in, in the mid-70s and, and did some trekking up in the Himalayas myself. So uh, brought back a lot of memories oh, wow. for me. So so that's kind of fascinating. But you you've you mentioned that when you were 15, I think uh, your sister gave you a copy of Trekking in Nepal, right? The Lonely Planet Guide. I remember, I remember the book myself, and uh, it <laughs> yeah. fascinated you, yeah? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, it's funny because I, well, I grew up on the West Coast here in, in North America, and so 
you know, so I, the mountains were kind of always around me. Um, and my father, you know, he'd take us camping, my sister and I, and, uh, you know, we'd go into nature, spend a lot of time in uh, kind of the natural environment. And so I always grew an appreciation for mountains and, and hiking and, and that sort of thing. But um, but these big mountains in the Himalaya, they were always kind of calling me. Um, I'm not sure why, like deep down, on almost a very soul level, I was uh, feeling drawn to go there from a very young age. And and my sister, she yeah, she gave me that Lonely Planet book, Trekking in the Himalaya, when I was, uh, I think I was 15 years old. And it was, you know, it was one of the best presents I had ever received. I, I remember getting it and um, and just kind of turning the pages so fast, I, I couldn't even read anything. I was just kind of taking in the pictures of the people and the, the culture, the places, and and just all I could think about was to to run out of the house uh, with that Lonely Planet book and and just head over there at once. Um, but um, but yeah, it wasn't until my early thirties that I finally made it there. I, I you know when I was younger, I, I didn't have the money or you know and, and working on my career, I couldn't take that big chunk of time off. Um, and in addition to that, I kind of um, I never really knew what I wanted to do. You know when I when I went there, Nepal was such a special place for me and. And uh, I wanted to go somewhere kind of unique or, or sort of truly off the beaten path. And, and maybe I was being over romantic about it, but, uh, but it was just such a, such a special place. I wanted to make sure that I went somewhere that, um, that I truly felt called to. So, uh, yeah, so it wasn't until my early 30s. Um, actually, one day, Chantal, my wife and I, we, we, we were sitting down with this gentleman, Mick, um, who's from the UK, and, and he had been trekking for over 20 years in the Nepal Himalaya into some of the most obscure places. Um, and he said to me, uh, you know, he kind of could tell the passion and, and the love that I had for the place and the people, the culture. And he said, Mike, I, I got to tell you about this place. I got to tell you about the Lost Valley of Narfu. And, uh, and he, he had me at Lost Valley, but, but, you know, looking at his pictures, I, I just, I thought, wow, these are like the pictures that I saw in that Lonely Planet book those, uh, those many years ago. Yeah, and you're talking about, for some of us who are familiar with it, it's in the, what, what's become known as the Annapurna Sanctuary, right? The, the, the wonderful journey you could take now around the various peaks of the Annapurna range um, from Pokhara, you know, up into the mountains or over really into the uh, Tibetan plateau and then and then down, um, it, you know, and return a sort of a circle. But where you went was sort of in the um, the eastern part of that area, you know, not not so well traversed. Right. Not, and um, certainly no roads until very recently. Uh, and um, because when I did my trek, you know, there were no roads at all outside of Pokhara. Mm. So it was all um, hiking, basically trekking. Nowadays, you know, there are roads, things are being developed. So it's a little bit different, isn't it? And once roads come, um, mm. as you mentioned in the book, you know, trash comes, right? Um, attitudes change. Um, people are different. And, and there's that desire to get back to, you know, the way it was. Uh, before, you know, maybe we're not looking for a Shangri-La as, as much as something a little less um, influenced by, by the West, so, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a very fascinating point because we're seeing it. I guess we're seeing it happen all over the world. 
to some degree yes. in terms of this modern world kind of um, moving into all these these little areas, these valleys and and different remote parts of the world as we speak. Um, but exactly, I mean, the Annapurna circuit, uh, I'm not sure what year you were there, but yeah, even that has, I think it was opened up in the 70s and has now since turned into one of the most popular trekking or treks in, in the Himalaya. In the, um, right. But but we kind of, uh, yeah, we, we kind of, only spent about a quarter of the time on that on the Annapurna circuit, and then we ended up um, branching off north uh, into this into this valley, this what they called the Lost Valley at the time, because that valley had only been opened up in um, uh, well, we sat down with Mick in 2011, and it had only been opened up a few years before that. So prior to that, you know, similar to your experience, I think um, it had been closed off to the rest of the world. Uh, so it had, uh, you know, no access to to electricity. They didn't even at that time have toilets up there. Um, you know, the people were days away from the nearest road. Uh, you had to cross these very high mountain passes to get to the, the village. The villages themselves were at uh, 14,000 feet in elevation. Um, so the people out there are kind of very self-sufficient. I mean, they made their own clothes out of, uh, you know, their, what materials they had. They had yak wool and sheep wool. And their food, you know, they were very self-sufficient from there. Um, but yeah, again, like no books, no outside, no access to outside um, information. Um, you know, the, other than the scriptures in the monastery, uh, they didn't really have any access to um, to yeah to outside books or anything like that. So yeah, it was very very um, kind of cut off from the rest of the world until that time. And 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 Mick had kind of made a prediction when we were sitting down in that restaurant in 2011. Uh, he said, you know, now that that this area was being open to the outside world, um, there was going to be some change. Uh, there was going to be some unprecedented change uh, in the ter- in terms of their you know, like social change and cultural change as the as the kind of the modern world sort of um, flooded its way in there. And so Chantal and I, we thought, well, why don't we put together a little team of artists? Uh, you know, we had a musician and a photographer a nature artist and and Chantal and I, we would do some filming and we thought, you know, we could just learn and observe from the people out there uh, and also capture a moment in time before, you know, capture a moment in time through these unique lenses uh, before things change too much. Absolutely. And got, you mentioned in the book a lot about uh, the, the religious tradition of, of Buddhism, right? And uh, that's especially true up in the, the high mountains, but uh, there's also a, a Hindu tradition. I think Nepal's unique. It has two official religions, and that's Buddhism and and Hinduism. And they 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 sort of nest together quite nicely, don't they? Um, people accept mm. each other. There's no there's no fighting between the the religions. Uh, they they may be fighting in other ways. I know there's um, there's been Maoist rebellions, and uh, you know there there were there were a big revolution recently in Nepal, but. Uh, but that's really more political rather than than religious. It, it, they they seem a very peaceful people in general, in my experience. The the Nepali people. That that's right. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, and um, and I think that's part of the reason why no matter where you go in the world, uh, when you en- encounter people who have gone and visited Nepal, they will always speak of the people there, the Nepali people, um, because the Nepali people there is this. Um, gentleness there's this peacefulness um very deeply rooted in as you say in their religion whether it's hinduism 
more around the urban centers or in the south um, or in Tibetan Buddhism uh, among the people in the north. And, uh, and, and yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, if you look at the number of ethnic minority groups in Nepal, um, there's, there, there's countless. Um, and yet they all kind of, um, you know, find this unique way of harmonizing. Um, and, and of course, yeah, as you mentioned, there's, there's been political unrest and, and things like that. And, and they had issues around trying to uh, come together and create a constitution. But, um, but the people themselves, I think there's this very deep um, human element to them that, uh, that seems to touch lives of visitors, no matter, no matter where you're from. It seemed like a, when I was there, it seemed like a magical kingdom, you know, like it was, uh, I was moving back into the Middle Ages almost. Uh, the way I imagined life was like in, my, in Wales, where I grew up, you know, hundreds of years ago, it was, they were living it out there. So, so there was that sort of um, Lord, Lord of the Rings, like charm to it all, you know, and the sort of, surely these people can't be in the 20, 20th or 21st centuries, right? Because there's, there's a timelessness <laughs> to the place. And uh, just the, the, the landscape itself, the houses, the, the way everything's put together seemed to be of another, another era. I think that's what charms, you know, a lot of people is that they, they're deeply connected to nature too, as in my experience, right? They're, they're in a way that we've lost perhaps. Um, and we're trying to regain, right, in the West. Uh, I know you yourself are, you know, deeply connected to nature in, in British Columbia. And, and uh, I know others who are, you know, trying to get back to that sense of connectedness to, to the world before it's too late, right? before we become completely cut off from, from source, if you like. That's right. Yeah, no. And, and that's one of the things that's very present over there that we that we experienced. I mean, especially when we went into that Lost Valley, it literally felt like we were walking back. We were time travelers and we had stepped right. back into the 17th century or something like that. Um, yeah. You know, as I said, the people were, were very authentically connected to the way that they'd been living for for hundreds of years. Um, so yeah, no, just being able, I, I didn't know places like that still existed in the world. And, and I remember our first few encounters with the people there, the villagers, the locals in, in that valley. And, and, um, it was almost like when you were looking into their eyes, you were looking into the very depths of the soul, almost like a reflection back into my own soul by looking into, into, uh, into their eyes and, and I think a lot of it had to do with, um, you know, the fact that they didn't have all these layers, you know, in the Western world or in the modern world, we tend to put up all these layers because of technology. And, you know, we're spending much more time in front of screens and, and we have an abundance of, uh, of sort of communication thrown at us every moment of, of the day. Um, but there they didn't have that. I mean, there they are still at that time specifically, um, they were still very uh, connected you know, without the technologies, without the screens, without the social media, all of that stuff. So, um, so I remember, you know, being there, looking into their eyes was, as I said, like looking into the depths of the human soul, which was, uh, which was a very profound uh, experience. You also mentioned in the book that, um, you know, the contrast between the, the attitudes of Nepalese uh, say children to parents, the respect that they show to their parents, 
and uh, some of the ways that we, you know, in the West treat our parents, whatnot, uh, with less respect. I, I think there is a deep respect deep down, but sometimes it doesn't it doesn't seem to be apparent, right? It, it comes out as rudeness <laughs> and whatnot. And, uh, you know, we yeah, learn a lot, yeah. therefore, right? We, we think we're sophisticated and more advanced than these cultures. And, and Nepal is one of the poorest countries in the world economically, and yet in some ways, mm -hmm. you know, richer than we are, right? Yeah, that, and that was one of the main, you know, what, kind of one of the central dichotomies of, of um, when Chantal and I, we kept going back there over the years. Uh, every eight to 10 months, we'd go back to to Nepal and and uh, kind of a long story that brought us there. But um, But we ended up meeting this little girl in one of those mountain villages out there in the Lost Valley. And um, I had this this whole quest of trying to climb this mountain, which kind of blew up in my face. And and for a time out there, went through this identity crisis that, um, you know, it felt like part of my identity had been stripped away. And I was trying to find out, you know, why am I here in the Himalaya now? But we ended up, as circumstances had it, we were led to this little, um, this little village called Nar. This little girl there was teaching English numbers and and we ended up uncovering this uh, this karmic connection uh, between Chantal and me and her and and, her, and then her family and her little sister Pemba, and we've been growing that relationship over over the years. Um, so because we've been going back um, every uh, every eight to ten months, yeah, we'd kept kind of flip flipping between those lenses, right? I mean, you know. First, you get there to Nepal, and you can definitely see the, um, you know, the stark contrast. The the very, uh, yeah, the fact that it is one of the poorest nations in the world. It's it's one of the. I mean, Kathmandu is the most polluted city in the world by air pollution, and um, and so that's very in your face. But then the more time we'd spend there with the people, and you know, kind of the, those Western lenses would sort of fall away. And then we would connect again on the on the more sort of human level and and start to see, as you say, like how the children in particular would uh, interact with each other and with 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 the elders and you know those the adults around them and 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 the differences in values that we place on on and priorities on on certain things. Um, you know, for example, I started to pick up on on the differences in terms of how we're raising children here versus there. I mean, here we place more priority on on the individual, right? We, we kind of celebrate the success of the individual. We put the individual on the, on the cover of the magazine, so to speak. And uh, whereas there they celebrate much more, it's about the community. You know, how can we share? How can we, you know, thrive as a community? Uh, here it's much more about pride and, and almost boasting. Uh, whereas there it's more about about humbleness. And um, <laughs> I remember the one case where a friend was telling me that they were sitting around the dinner table and, and a bunch of um, uh, guys had, and girls had just come off of Mount Everest and, and they were celebrating. Uh, and there was this one Sherpa woman there and they were all, all the Westerners were kind of talking about their ascent up, up Mount Everest. And, and, uh, and they turned to this one Sherpa woman and they, and one of the guys asked, Oh, have you, do you, do you climb as well? And she said, oh, I climb a little bit. But she was one of the, women, the, the Sherpa women who had climbed Everest several times. So, you know, <laughs> so it's kind of, kind of like, you know, again, there's that, that sense of, again, here we have to show pride and, and there is, is, is more about humbleness. So, you know, that was one of the key differences. Uh, here it's more about, you know, what can we get? What can we accumulate? 
Um, there it's more about what can we give. So, I mean, right. again, all of these, uh, these differences sort of, you know, would come to the foreground for me, the more we'd kind of travel back and forth. And, and, and like you said, I mean, you know, yeah, where we are rich, perhaps um, they are rich in, in, in other ways. So it was kind of interesting to, uh, to, to experience that and, and, and sort of contrast the, these two worlds together in terms of what we can perhaps learn from them. Another interesting thing for me is, uh, you know, there's a gentleness about them, like you talked about, uh, but there, there's also a, a steeliness. I mean, we're talking about climbing those mountains, you know, that that's not for sissies, is it? I, of either sex, you know, you have to be tough to, to climb a mountain. And likewise, you know, the British have been, and the Indian Army as well, has been taking Nepalese, you know, as Gurkhas into the Gurkha regiments for hundreds of years now and because they are you know extremely fierce fighters and um you, you don't want to mess with them so so the, you know the mm. Brit britain had a hard time conquering nepal and decided not to conquer it just to have it as a sort of a client kingdom separate from the empire um and part of that was because the the people were very difficult to to fight you know they they were, they were tough. <laughs> um and you know, as you mentioned in the book, you know, Nepal was cut off right from the from the the outside world for over a century. Right, it wasn't until 1952, I think, that it began to open up again. That's not long that long ago, and um, mm -hmm, yeah. I don't think there was one single road in Nepal uh, at that time. You know, things have changed considerably, but um, now you know, it, India and China, the two great neighbors are sort of vying for control and you mentioned in the book that uh, one of the villages you were at you know when you went back years later there was um, a hydroelectric scheme by the Chinese and and the cement works or whatever and of course the Chinese famously put a, a ring road around Kathmandu um, back in the at the early 70s and and India has you know brought roads up from from India so it, it Mm -hmm. What do you think of that? You know, I guess superpowers are going to, uh, or regional superpowers are going to vie for control, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a unique scenario because you have this little kingdom, you know, essentially that, uh, like you said, I mean, was only opened until or closed until the 50s and then opened to the world after that um, gradually. But you've got these two major economic superpowers uh, to, the, to the north and to the south. I mean, China's coming in you know, from the north and and both of them, you know, understand the importance of Nepal in terms of it has rich resources, access to water, um, you know, hydroelectric electricity, uh, you know, all of these things. So so they're both kind of trying to navigate themselves. And, and of course, India and China aren't the best of friends, um, but and Nepal's kind of, you know, left in the middle. So, um, yeah, so we, we saw that. Um, very, uh, very blatantly as we went there, as we kept going back and, and, uh, and China, you know, coming in from the north. Um, yeah, it's, it's physically changing the landscape. I mean, the first time we went in there, uh, back in 2012, there were these quaint little farming villages on the Annapurna circuit. And, um, and I remember when we went back in 2017 to that exact same spot, uh, I would not have even recognized that that spot i mean um it was now the site of a major chinese hydroelectric dam and and barbed wire fences and cement trucks and you know 
white gloved um, Chinese guards. Um, so, yeah, it's changing very quickly, uh, even in the Lost Valley um you know, where we had gone and, and where we had felt like we stepped back in time into the 17th century. I mean, mixed prediction back in 2011 came and is coming true. You know, there's more tea houses. The pathways have, have grown wider. There's more litter in these areas. Um, you know, more people coming in and out. Um, you know, they have uh, cell phone towers now. They've got uh, access to a little bit more electricity, that sort of thing. So, uh, so things are rapidly changing you know, not only for from the locals in the in the villages, but also from these outside forces that are are kind of coming in and and encroaching into all these places. So, yeah. So that that was that was one of the kind of the prevailing questions that Chantal and I kept asking. You know, when we grew closer to this family out there in the mountains, Karma, who and she was seven years old when we met her, uh, and she showed such a such a passion for for learning for for sort of having an outside education because we learned in these villages you know especially at that time it was very hard for for the children to get outside education i mean they'd have their village education but in the villages life was different right we learned that by the time they're five six years old they had to start working long hours in the fields uh very hard labor um, you know, infant mortality rates were high. Two out of five kids died before the ages of five um, from very treatable things. Um, you know, uh, girls, by the time they were 15 years old, some of them were getting married and having their own families at that time. Um, so, you know, again, their, their lives is just a very different way. And, and so the parent, I learned this phrase out there that the parents had, which was, um, you know, they'd rather their children have a pencil in the hand versus a strap around the forehead because, um, you know, if you imagine, like, again, how Nepalese carry things, it's around the, the forehead, uh, which, by the way, I tried, and it's a very hard way to, to lift things. Um, but, yeah, so they, they kind of want what's best for their children, and, and they know that, like, outside education uh, can bring them more choice um, in life. So, um, yeah, so Karma, she just showed such a passion for learning and and for this outside education. And so Chantal and I thought, okay, well, what can we do? You know, can we work with the parents um, to try and, and, and find her, you know, this kind of education? Um, and, and that relationship has been developing over years and to a point where we've kind of been co-parenting um, with her parents, uh, trying to, you know, four parents kind of coming together to try and find the best way forward for Karma and her sister Pemba and, and, and kind of equip them with the tools to... Um, to 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 sort of uh you know thrive in this in this new world um and at the same time do it in a way where they don't lose touch with their deeply embedded tibetan culture and buddhism um right yeah it, yeah yeah we'll where i think we're coming to the break we'll talk more about that fascinating subject after these messages from unity folks join us in a couple of minutes We now return to World Spirituality with Reverend Paul John Roach. All right, welcome back to our show. I'm with Michael Shaw. We're talking about his fascinating book, A Story of Karma, which has a, a double meaning because there's karma involved for him 
in in the transformation that happened uh, in his life as a result of going to this lost valley in Nepal. But it's also the name of a girl that he met, that Michael met there, that again had a profound effect uh, on his life. So a story of karma, finding love and truth in the lost valley of the Himalaya. Uh, in the first half, we've been talking about uh, different aspects of of that beautiful kingdom in Nepal, uh, the pressures of the outside world, the the magic of it. Um, the, the people, how they're gentle and strong at the same time, and we have much to learn from them. Um, in this second part, though, I want to explore which the heart of the book, right, which is um, the first part is this journey into this king, into this magical uh, valley. Uh, but then there's the meeting with uh, this particular girl and then her sister and then the family and, and how, how the story unraveled from, from that because it's, it's quite fascinating. And what a beautiful connection. And what, another cool thing, folks, if you get the book, um, is to look at the beautiful color photographs that are in it, which uh, it's like the whole book is encapsulated in some of these photographs. And so you get to see the, the characters that uh, appear in the, in, in the book, and you see the beautiful landscapes as well. Um, and and that's, that's a, a beautiful thing too. So yeah, let's jump in on that, you know, because you are still deeply connected to these the, these two sisters, right, and the family. Mm. Yeah, that that's right. Yeah, I, I would have never dreamed in <laughs> back in 2012 when I had that objective of climbing this um, this pyramid mountain that I had seen in a photograph. I never dreamed that that mountain could have actually pulled me into one of the most profound encounters, uh, deep human connections of my life. Um, you know, when we met Karma in her little village there um, back in 2012, she was seven years old and she was teaching a group of kids English numbers. Um, just the most beautiful scene, if you imagine these group of kids, uh, clothes unraveling at the sleeves, you know, cheeks sunburnt to the point that they have blisters on their faces, um, you know, kind of snot dripping down their upper lips, you know, very rough, like very, uh, you know, mountain kids. It's, you know, again, it's survival in these in these villages up there. Um, and at the same time, you know, had this incredible, you know, kind of radiance coming out of them, just beautiful uh, children. Um, and then they were there in front of this this vista, the 7,000 meter peaks um, kind of looming above. Um, so just an incredible scene. And that, that's kind of where everything sparked in terms of this connection with Karma and her sister uh, Pemba and their family. And over the years, you know, Chantal and I, we've been kind of going back and, and visiting with them and and growing our, our families essentially together um, and, and trying to, you know, wrestle these these questions, all of these questions that have been coming out as you and I, we've been discussing, you know, again, how do you how do you prepare two little girls from the mountains uh, with the tools to survive in the modern world when the modern world's encroaching into their villages as we speak and do it in a way that they retain control over who they are? you know, their cultural identity. So um, that's been something that we've been, you know, working with their parents and and, and just kind of, um, yeah, I mean, it's been, we've been navigating it over years. And and I remember their father, you know, actually their father said, he's a very wise man and uh, he's a yak herder uh, out there in the mountains. And he said to me once that, um, he said to me two things. One was that he said to, that he never wanted his girls 
to forget where they're from. He never wants them to forget their dharma. Um, and at the same time, he feels extremely appreciative that Chantal and I are there in their lives because he feels like they can go, um, you know, kind of farther and faster in life uh, with us under our kind of our care, so to speak. Well, there's a lovely part in the book where I think the the two girls had come over to, to Canada to be with you all for a while. And uh, you were immersed in, in all the things that the, the West can offer in that regard. But there was an important exam, right? That uh, if you don't pass that exam in the fall, you know, it's going to hamper your future development or whatever. And uh, so the decision was made to send them back so that they could study for that, that uh, you know, watershed exam. And, uh, and I thought, now that must have been a tough decision. And yet there was a, you know, it seemed, it, it came to you that they, it, that was the right choice, right? That there, there, was a, there was a higher calling there for, to, to do that. And so they went back. Yeah, yeah, no, the, it was kind of a, yeah, an interesting journey because, well, I mean, first of all, they went to this school in, in Nepal, SMD Sri Mangal Dip School for Himalayan children uh, for several years. And that school directly cultivates their, their Tibetan uh, heritage. And uh, the whole mission of the school is to make sure that these kids, they call it actually the schools for the lost children uh, of the Himalaya, these kids that are so far out there in these pockets, they just get forgotten about. So the whole mission, it was started by a Tibetan Lama, was to you know, cultivate the, the Tibetan culture, but also make sure that these kids are empowered to, to be able to, to give back to their communities, their villages. Um, but then, you know, back in 2017, the parents expressed an interest for the girls to come to Canada. We, you know, we thought, okay, well, maybe we can do this education exchange. And we kind of left it open-ended. Like, we didn't know what was going to happen. And we just thought, okay, I mean, I guess so much of the focus was just to get them here because that took a small miracle. Um, you know, it was, it was basically almost impossible to get uh, student visas from Nepal to, to, to North America, to the U.S. or to Canada. And um, but, you know, we made it happen. There was I'm just amazed at the, at the, the people, the kind of people that came to the table uh, to make it happen. And um, and yeah, so the girls, I mean, Karma and Pemba, they lived with Chantal and I for a year um, in our home. I mean, we don't have our own kids by choice, but, you know, we became parents um, to a 14 year old and a 10 year old uh, overnight. <laughs> you know, so it was uh, it was an amazing. I mean, just to see their the way their minds expanded by being here and uh and then how you know our minds expanded uh the things that they taught us um and and not only that but just the way that they touched the lives of the people around them here they went to uh, the squamish uh, we have a waldorf school here um which is very, very hearted you know it's very different you know in terms of the education system or structure but um but you know the heart centeredness is is something that they are familiar with and so uh so it was kind of a soft landing for for them here but i remember um one of actually one of pemba's interestingly enough pemba's two closest friends that she made here while in canada uh, are both um indigenous first nations indigenous and i remember one of the mothers of uh one of these girls she said to me you know she she came to me one day and she said thank you for bringing pemba into my daughter's life um pemba is my daughter's first friend who has been able to see her for who she truly is and 
I just thought, wow. I mean, it comes back, I think, down to, again, that that deep human presence that we talked about at the beginning. And and the way, I mean, they would, Carmen Pemba would just, they were just being themselves. They were unconscious or they weren't like sort of consciously projecting a certain way, but just by being themselves, they were affecting lives deeply of the children and adults here. Yes, that's beautiful. Um, and yeah, the, the story of the, uh, the, the school is interesting too. Um, as you said, it was founded by a Tibetan Lama and who, who happened to have a monastery in British Columbia too, didn't he? Which is kind of interesting, <laughs> karmically. Um, but, and, and you visited him, he was recovering from an illness, I believe. And you were, you were asking if, if uh, the children could, you know, attend that school in, in Nepal. And uh, the initial uh, response was, well, too bad it's full, you know, there's a long waiting list. But but you got to actually speak with the, with Rim, with the Rinpoche and uh, things changed. So tell us about that, because that was an interesting story too. Yeah, yeah, no, that, I mean, again, one of these very fascinating uh, synchronicities um, that uh, they seem to be accumulating the synchronicities as we as we kept going. But um, but yeah, we I mean, Chantal and I, we had searched for, uh, you know, after that initial meeting with with Karma's parents back in 2012, um, we were searching for an appropriate and safe boarding school for her. And and again, that was culturally aligned with the Tibetan Buddhism um, roots. So we got back to Kathmandu, couldn't find anything there. We came back to Canada. Um, we're searching for over a month and, uh, and and almost losing hope. But I remember one day Chantal, she called me and she said, hey, Mike, you know, you got to you got to come in here and check this out. And and she found, you know, up popped this this website for this school, uh, Sri Mangaldip SMD boarding school for Himalayan children. And on the front page was a picture of kids, you know, again, sleeves unraveling uh, the kids, the kids that looked like the kids uh, that we had seen Karma, you know, and her friends in in the village that day and um and with you know i thought this is perfect you know i said who founded the school it was founded by this this high-ranking lama who had fled nepal or sorry fled tibet back in the in the 50s and uh and he started this school specifically for these these uh these children in that upper himalayan belt um and so we wrote to the school director once um she wrote back and she said, you know, thank you for sharing the story. Uh, sounds like a, a brilliant little girl. Um, but I have to tell you that, um, you know, the school's full. Uh, we have 500 kids. We're busting at the seams here. Uh, we have 400 kids on the wait list. Um, you know, we've got kids being dropped off on the stairs that we have to turn away. And, uh, and because of all this, there's only one person who can admit new kids into the school. And that is this 80-plus-year-old uh, um, Rinpoche. Um, and, uh, and, and I remember reading her email and I just felt like I was being dropped down a black hole. Like I was thinking, you know, why are there so many barriers being stacked against this one little girl who just wants to, um, just wants to learn? Um, and, uh, but then, you know, Chantal had included our, our address in the email signature and, uh, and the school director, she said, well, you know, I see that you're in, uh, in Vancouver, in Canada, you may be interested to know that that uh, Tarangu Rinpoche, uh, this Lama, is recovering from an illness right now at his monastery in Richmond, um, and he'll be there for the next few days. And that was like a 25-minute drive from our home. <laughs> you know, so I, I, couldn't have, 
<laughs> I couldn't have planned it out like you know any better. Quite fascinating. And initially, you know, you could you, like we all often do when we go to these monasteries, you get a, a sort of a curt reception. You know, it seems like that's the way it's done. I think it's to test your, your resolve, you know, to see if you really are who, who you think you are. <laughs> um, but <laughs> what, right. you, what your intent was, you, you, got, you got an audience, right? Uh, uh, just a five minute audience with the Rinpoche and he heard your story and uh, he said, well, it's full this year, but uh, karma can come next year to the, the next year's intake. And uh, he'd never yeah. done that before, right? Later on, you found out that uh, it always they had to go through exams or whatever, or te you know, interviews. This was a highly unusual thing. So, some some karmic thing was happening there, right? Some you could tell your intent was good, and um, and made that decision, and 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 it worked out, yeah. That, that's right. Yeah. No, I remember there was this um, Buddhist saying that I learned over there. Uh, which is, you know, when something is pursued with selflessness, uh, pure selflessness and from the heart, um, barriers tend to fall away. And not to say that it becomes easy, but there will be an opening. And, and that seems to be have been the theme throughout this entire uh, journey. You know, I mean, there were times where whether it was, you know, getting karma into the school there, um, you know, dealing with things like the earthquakes over there, which is a whole other story. I mean, 2015, the devastating earthquakes were just crazy what the kids had to go through. Um, you know, whether it was bringing the kids here, um, you know, moving forward, you know, through COVID, the pandemic, um, you know, there's all these barriers that kept coming up again and again and again. And yet there was always a little keyhole gap that um that we could just kind of you know maneuver through so i you know i i feel i just feel like this incredible richness uh or, or this incredible um i feel incredibly blessed um for them for the richness of the experiences that they've had in their young years and i, I was thinking about it the other day like you know they they came from their village um they came to Kathmandu, spent several years there at the school. They had their experience here in North America. Um, they went back to the school in Kathmandu and this was all pre-COVID and then uh, and then COVID hit and then they had to go back to their village and um, and I remember you know one day Karma and Pemba they were and, and since then you know as I said there's been a cell phone tower put up there um, and they called me one day and they said they were all, uh, you know, kind of all very excited. And they said, hey, Mike, you know, <laughs> you never believe what we what we just uh, saw. And I said, what, what did you see? And and they said, oh, we were bringing the goats in and and uh, and we came around this corner and there was a snow leopard uh, that had grabbed one of the goats and was taking it up the cliff. And, <laughs> and, and they were just they were scared of it. But then they were trying to scare it away to save the goat and. And the snow leopard dropped the goat and and uh, Pemba said she was crying because the goat was dying in front of them. And and I was just listening to this thinking like, oh, my goodness, you know, I, that's an experience I would have never been able to give you over here. I mean, I'm thinking about the kids next door and they're in lockdown, you know, playing video games or whatever. But uh, I just I feel extremely blessed for like the these kind of rich experiences that they're getting and and different lenses that they can kind of uh 
you know, look at the world through. Absolutely. Yeah. Rich, I, I want to point out, too, that uh, these two children weren't the only children of the, the parents, right? They had several others, a couple, you, I think you mentioned the nuns in a, in a monastery. Um, and, and so, you know, it was, a, it was a large family, yeah? Um, but these two, you were mm. able to, you know, connect with at a certain age where, you know, it worked out for you to, to help them and, uh, and, and to help them unfold. So where, where are they now? How old are they now? And what's 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 going on for them? Yeah, so they're they're turning 17 and 13 um, this year. And uh, because, you know, again, they because of COVID, I mean, COVID in Nepal is very different than COVID in North America. You know, COVID in North America, kids could easily get access to or most kids could easily get access to laptops and, and um, you know, through remote learning and that sort of thing. But um, because when COVID hit there in Kathmandu, the school had to close. All the kids had to get sent back to their villages. Um, but many of the villages weren't prepared to have the kids come back. So they didn't have the food or, you know, the clothes for the winter and all of these things. So, um, so yeah, they were dealing with a lot of times, you know, just trying to survive, um, let alone trying to continue with their education. And so, and then, you know, again, continuing with the education, um, you know, many of the kids didn't have access to electricity, let alone the internet or, you know, smartphones or laptops and that sort of thing. So we worked with the parents to get Karma and Pemba set up, um, you know, in a little, uh, uh, you know, kind of in an area where they could have internet access. And, um, and many of the older kids who had gone through that school were actually able to teach the kids as well back in the villages. So, you know, that was kind of, again, the Rinpoche's aim of having that circular effect, right? So, right. so that, was, that was good. But, um, but yeah, so to set them up with remote learning, we were able to get them um, access to the internet. And, uh, and that was very, and I was kind of tutoring them as well, which was, which was kind of cool. Um, but yeah, and then they came back to Kathmandu uh, when the school reopened. But then the second wave of COVID hit and then they went back um, into kind of lockdown again. But, you know, it, it's interesting because um, actually one of uh, Pemba's teachers sent me this, what, one of her assignments, and he was so taken by it, he, he sent it to me. And then it, the assignment reading it just nearly brought me to tears um, because the assignment was called, you know, what I learned during lockdown. And Pemba said, you know, what I learned during lockdown was how much my parents love me. She said, because I left the village when I was young, um, but being back in the village now, I, I can see how hard my parents have to work uh, for food and shelter. And being back in the village, I've learned how to survive. I've learned how to take care of the animals and my siblings. And I've learned how much my parents love me because they don't want me to have the life like theirs. And therefore, that's why they want me to have this education. And I, I just thought, you know, for a for a twelve year old to come into that level of awareness um, is pretty pretty remarkable. Absolutely, yeah. Wow. I, I think I saw in the news recently that uh, some minister in Nepal had reached reached out to the British government, you know, for for vaccines because they're having an uptick in in um, the coronavirus again in in Nepal. So 
yeah, it's it's not mm-hmm. it's not over yet. There's still lots to deal with. Real quick, we're running out of time. Um, you were there, you know, at the time of the earthquake, and now later. Has there been a lot of recovery? What what's the latest on that? Yeah, I mean, like you mentioned, the Nepali people are extremely resilient, hardworking, very tough. Um, so, yeah, the earthquake was a big blow um, to them. And then on the back of the earthquake, we didn't talk about, it, but then they had the fuel crisis um, where there was that that border blockade between India and Nepal. And in Nepal, as a landlocked country, it relies a lot on the import from from India in terms of food and medicines and, and fuel and that sort of thing. So, you know, so then they were hit with that. Uh, they couldn't get access to um, to fuel and food and whatnot, medic- medicines. And and so um, so they, they had to deal with that. And then and then, you know, a couple of years later, uh, a few years later, you know, and then they're now dealing with COVID. And and like you mentioned, I mean, COVID is is um, it's not like here where they have access to hospitals and doctors and as much, uh, you know, oxygen, ventilators, those things. Um, you know, there, there's literally hundreds of people, hundreds of, of people dying every day um, from this. And, and the, I've heard that the pyres of Pashupatinath are, are just burning nonstop. The bodies, the army has actually been, have been hired to dispose of all the bodies every day. Um, so it's just, uh, yeah, it's just it's very, you know, a very tragic um, scene of what's happening over there. Um, and at the same time, the people are, are like they've always done. Are, uh, are are just relying on themselves to get through it. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And you know, you mentioned earlier about the strap around the, ne- the 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 forehead, and I remember distinctly being impressed with that because they carry huge baskets on their back, and and it's all held with a, a by the forehead with a strap. And you know, you think that would just whip you whip your neck. It's unbelievable. But and and the, like mm. you, like you were saying. The, Young people will do it. Older people, everybody's carrying these amazingly heavy loads, um, and, and especially people who are traveling, you know, across the, the these these trails. And I've never seen feet so um, calloused and broad. I mean, you know, many people's feet are splayed because they've been uh, walking barefoot for years. Uh, the most mm. unbelievable, resilient, strong people I think I've ever ever seen in my life uh, and and yet with with the calm um patience about them and cheerfulness that is, is quite remarkable you know there's a lot for us to learn <laughs> in our little i think so yeah uh, cosseted way in, over here in the in the west you know um where, where we got a hangnail and we got a problem so um it, it, it's <laughs> good to, to 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 understand that and and this book is wonderful in that regard too you know and it, but I love the, also the symbiosis, right? We, we're able to provide, and, and you were and are able, were able to provide something that, that, that wasn't available. And, and, and so this is the good news. You know, I think it's, it's our job, isn't it, to, to communicate, uh, you know, to, to have a two-way street going on throughout our world, that uh, there's something to, le- to be learned from both, both ends, I think is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. No, and I think uh, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I think it's just the more we can kind of um, you know connect with each other, uh, you know, through this language of the heart, uh, you know, especially nowadays with everything going on in the world, the more we can kind of transcend these more surface level uh, differences. And and I think that's really what what is needed now in in the world. 
absolutely. Um, I'm going to tell people about next week's show, and then after that, we might have a, a minute or so for you to share one thing that's on your heart to share today, Mike, um, that we haven't covered yet, okay? So next week, um, health administrator, author, and spiritual teacher and coach, Richard Anderson, joins me from the UK, and he's going to talk about the eight dimensions of awakened leadership based on his new book which is called Transcendent Leadership. So to join me then for that. But right now to finish up the show, um, what, what, what haven't we covered today that you would like to share? Yeah, no, uh, thank you very much. I mean, I would just say, you know, for those of you who choose to read the book, A Story of Karma, um, you know, I'm hoping that you enjoy the journey and as much as I, I did in terms of sharing some of the experience. But um I hope it also is a good reminder that uh, you know just to not doubt in the in 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 the one action that you can take or how much one action can change everything um, if taken from you know from again that heart centeredness um, you know how a series of actions or how one act can change everything. Yes, very interesting, and um, it, it's a question of building on these things, right? It, it's not like, you know, one act uh, changed everything and now it's over. No, one act changed something and then you, you, you move to the next step, right? The next step after that. So mm. it, it's, it's an infinite progression. But, but it is amazing, isn't it? You, you know, you had that encounter um, at, at that point and, and you were primed by it by talking with some of the villagers prior to meeting uh, Karma. But when the meeting took place, you know, you, you knew, and, and that's, that's fascinating. So th thank you, Michael Chow, for being on the show today. What a fascinating show. Thank you so much for having me here. All right. Thanks for listening, folks. See you next week. We're out of time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio the voice of an awakening world. Are you ready to experience the rich interconnection of spirituality, orientation, and identity? If so, plan to attend Liberating Your Divine Identity, a retreat at Unity Village during Pride Month, June 9th to the 12th. This soul-filled retreat is facilitated by LGBTQIA Unity ministers with workshops and ceremonies to cultivate a deeper awareness of our spiritual nature. Register at unityvillage.org forward slash divine 2022 